My name is James Penner, and I just wanted to make it clear that I'm not a part of the pastoral staff here. I've had some people ask me that in the past, whether I am or not, and I'm not. I am a part of the body of Christ, just like you here at Attridge, and I have gifts just like you have gifts, and so I just use them as we pray you are able to use yours. And so it's just a privilege for me to be able to share God's Word together with you. I also come to you on behalf of the Saskatchewan MB Conference. I have started a new role there, a volunteer position as pastoral associate to Phil Gunther, who is the conference pastor. So my role is preaching and teaching, so traveling throughout Saskatchewan and preaching and teaching in churches, um, supporting, mentoring leaders. So I also come in that role as well, in that capacity. And I'm just um, honored to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. I'm also aware that this is the first Sunday of a new year, and I'm not going to be mentioning that in my sermon, but as I was preparing and as I was praying, I was, I was aware of the strategic importance of a Sunday like this, that it can be the start of, of new beginnings for you. And so if the Holy Spirit does prompt you to make some resolutions then I would encourage you to be sensitive to that and, and to make those. So I am aware of the Sunday that today is. I'm also keenly aware of my time, and I have a lot that I want to share. So um, I pray that I'll be able to be precise in what God wants me to say. I want to talk about the challenge it is today to not have minds that are led astray from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And that is a huge challenge in our world today. With all of the distractions, with all of the uh, pressures, with all of the temptations that we face, it is a challenge. And so I pray that God can encourage you in this way this morning, that He can uh, strengthen you and even just, just again make you aware of how important it is to guard our heart and mind. In New Testament times, it was Jewish custom for families to arrange marriages. So, for example, the, the first son of Jacob would marry the first daughter of Eli, and these arrangements would be made um, long before the young woman was old enough to be, to be married. And when the young woman reached the age when plans for marriage were appropriate, the young man would go and speak to her father, not unlike we do in our culture, and then they would go through all the customary steps that would lead to an engagement. And that would include a betrothal ceremony where they would actually pledge themselves to each other. They would make vows to each other. And they would kind of seal all of this with drinking from a ceremonial cup of wine. And then, from that point forward, they were bound to each other for life. They were husband and wife, though months would pass before the actual wedding feast would take place, during which time the husband would go and prepare a place for his wife, for them to live. And the Bible uses this imagery to describe our relationship with Jesus. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb that's Jesus, has come, and his bride, that's us, 
has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So we the church are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. We have been betrothed to Jesus. One day, the wedding feast will take place. And in the meantime, Jesus says to us, as he said to his disciples in John 14, he says, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And Paul picks up this imagery in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 3. And Paul is writing to the believers in Corinth, and he's writing from the perspective of a father who has betrothed his daughter to a man because Paul brought the good news of Jesus Christ to Corinth and to the believers there, and he led them to faith in Jesus. And what he is saying is, it is like I, as your father in Christ, have betrothed you to Jesus. And this is what he writes, and he's writing this to these believers. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if you keep reading in this chapter, you'll see that Paul was afraid because there were certain men amongst the believers there, gifted, gifted speakers. They seemed so spiritual, spoke so much authority, but they were preaching a Jesus in a spirit and a gospel that's different than what Paul had brought to them, different than the truth, and the church seemed to be putting up with this. And you will also see, if we keep reading, that Paul understood that there is a very real unseen spiritual realm with evil spiritual beings led by Satan himself, and that they are at war with God's people, and that these men were only servants of an unseen spiritual enemy. Listen to what Paul writes to them in verses 13 to 15 of that same chapter. Talking about these men, he says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, He says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, 
against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I hope this morning that you will put up with me in a little foolishness. I'm not your father in the faith, but I am your brother. I also am afraid. I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid for the younger generation coming up. I'm afraid for all of us that somehow we might be deceived the same way that Eve was by the serpent's cunning by Satan. And and our minds may be led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ. Because listen, the evil one has no problem with you being devoted to the idea of being devoted to Christ. He has no problem with you being devoted to the teachings of Jesus, even. Or to high moral standards. That you're devoted to reading your your, your Bible and praying regularly in a disciplined way. But he does not want you to have a mind that is devoted to the person of Jesus Christ. To whom you are betrothed. To this actual person of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and who lives today. He does not want you to be madly in love with Jesus. Satan has not stopped. He started right from the beginning with Eve. He is still going. And so I want to talk about Satan for a moment. The Bible always exposes Satan and elevates Jesus. So if you read Scripture, they are exposing him and elevating Jesus. The Bible does not say in the book of James... Submit yourself to the Lord, ignore the devil, and he will flee from you. It says, submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, we cannot be unaware of the devil's schemes. Otherwise, we cannot resist him. So we're not elevating him, we're elevating Jesus and we're exposing him. That is what we are supposed to be doing in our culture. And that's what I want to do today. We will just barely get into this. And so I just want to make a little plug here. I've been studying spiritual warfare, our battle with our, with our very real enemy for months because I'm preparing to speak to the men the next three consecutive Saturdays. I'm going to be speaking to the men. We're going to be meeting here in the fireside room from 6 o'clock till 8 o'clock. There's a meal for you. And we're going to really dig into what this means. Because warfare is not a metaphor for our spiritual experience. It is what it is. That's what it is. 
It's not a metaphor. This is not peacetime. This is wartime. We are enforcing the victory of Jesus. It's already been secured. It's done. It's won. It's over. The destroyer will be destroyed, but he is not yet destroyed. And the casualties are still very real. When the war in Vietnam was over, some people did not know. And there was still guerrilla warfare going on. The bullets were just as real, and the people dead were just as dead. But do we understand this? And as men, we need to gather together around this. We need to understand this for the sake of our marriages and our families. And I would encourage you to come. Sign up on the website. There's information there. So let's keep going. Satan has much more influence and control in our world than Western culture has traditionally understood and acknowledged. Other cultures seem to have more of an understanding of this. In our Western culture, we do not. His fingerprints are everywhere. His philosophies, ideas, deceptions affect humanity and human affairs in a very fundamental and profound way. And our naturalistic bent with such a high value placed on empirical scientific methods have not served us well in providing us a biblically accurate understanding of the nature of the world in which we live. And the Bible tells us that Satan exists as the father of lies. He's the master of deception. He's the accuser of believers. He directly opposes the ministry and mission of the church. He provokes sin within us, and as the evil one is absolutely corrupt and wields a powerful and seductively wicked and corrupting influence in the world. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, Satan is the God, small g, God of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, he says he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. And in 1 John 5, 19, John says, we know, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so there's so many books that are written about why do bad things happen to good people? Well, if you're in wartime, it only makes sense that bad things would happen to good people. Of course bad things would happen to good people. This is not peacetime. So we live within that spiritual reality. And then we also have the nature in which God has made us. As thinking people. With a mind. Actually a mind through which our souls connect with Jesus. So I cannot connect intimately with Jesus if I don't have a mind that is filled with the truth about who Jesus is. And I don't have a mind that's filled with who Jesus is unless I fill it with who Jesus is because I was not born with that understanding in my mind of who Jesus is. So that means I'm going to have to do something with my mind 
in order for me to be able to connect intimately with him in my soul. Because I am a thinking person. And that is how God has made me. So that I can commune with him in the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer writes in his book, True Spirituality. Moral battles are won in the external world first. Oh, sorry. Moral battles are not won in the external world first. They're always a result flowing naturally from a cause, and the cause is in the internal world of one's thoughts. So this is where true spirituality in the Christian life rests. In the realm of the thought life, the battle for man is centrally in the world of thought. And I believe that the battle for our minds today has intensified exponentially. I really do. I can see it in my home. The evil one battles for the mind of my children. The evil influence of the evil one is powerful and pervasive. The lies and deceptions of the enemy streaming into our homes through our devices. And Satan wants to lead your mind astray. Do you understand this? He wants to darken and confuse your mind, creating turmoil and conflicting loyalties in your heart. He wants to lead your emotions astray. He wants to get you attached to the things of this world. He wants to have sin so embedded in your personality that it becomes a part of how people recognize who you are. That you can't even see it anymore because it's just such a a part of your life. That it becomes a part of your reputation. Becomes a part of your identity. He wants to fill your mind with lies and deceptions around who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you. Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. And he posed a question to her. He planted an idea in her mind. And he presented something to her that was winsome, attractive to her intellect, appealing to her temperament and disposition. And Satan deceived her with a piece of fruit hanging from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Piece of fruit. Listen. We have unprecedented access to limited to, to limitless volumes of ideas, thoughts, and information. Access to both the knowledge of good and evil, a click, a touch, a swipe away. I find it very ironic. that probably the most successful manufacturer of our devices has for its branding an apple with a bite taken out of it. Did you ever realize that? 
Because Satan presents things to us that are winsome. That appeal to our temperament and our personality. That are attractive to us. That are irresistible. People cannot put these down. We have nine Apple products in our home. Listen, Satan's methods have not changed. He still tempts us and deceives us the same way. He presents something to us that is designed to be irresistible and winsome and attractive to our intellect and appealing to our temperament and disposition. Something that we cannot put down that has limitless access to the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we have. The battle for our minds has intensified exponentially. The influence of the evil one is powerful and pervasive. The lies and deceptions of the enemy streaming into our homes through our devices. Listen, as believers betrothed to Jesus, we must be discerning in what we watch and what we listen to and what we read. We must be. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 4 says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. They're out of place. In Psalm 101, verses 2 and 3, the psalmist gives timely advice for us living in this media age. It says, I will be careful to live a blameless life. I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. And as Christians today, we cannot afford to leave our minds unguarded, unthinking, and undisciplined. So my question to you, is do you have a rule of life? Do you have a deliberate and determined way of living that has you maintaining and deepening your intimacy with Jesus every day? That's the key. See, I could talk to you about how much time you should spend in, your, in the Bible. I could talk to you about how you can put different functions on your phone that will maybe help you to keep in check even what you're watching and how much. But the evil one will take all of that and he'll try to push you into legalism. And he'll try to make that the focus of your mind. The focus of your mind is Christ. Do you have a rule of life? Do you have a way of living that's maintaining intimacy with Jesus? And if you have things in your life that are making that impossible, then you do what it takes. But the focus is on Jesus.
And what will keep our minds from being led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ is pure and simple devotion to Christ. And we read Scripture, we meditate on Scripture, we pray, we're discerning in what we watch, we li- what we listen to, what we read, we keep ourselves holy and blameless because we want to remain in Him and we want Him to remain in us. I have the incredible privilege because of the way God has structured my life right now that I can walk with Jesus for hours every day experiencing Jesus in intimate relationship. And John Owen in his book, Sin and Temptation, he captures so well how this guards and protects my mind and my heart and how it will guide and protect your heart and mine. Listen to what he says. We need to keep our heart full of a sense of the love of God. This is the greatest preservative available to us against the power of temptation in the world. Fill your heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ and apply the eternal design of His grace and shed blood to yourselves. Accept all the privileges of adoption, justification, and acceptance with God. Fill your hearts with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as designed by God and made effective by His death. Then in the ordinary course of walking with God, you will experience great peace and security from temptation. In Philippians 4 verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is the love of Christ that will hold you. When you have greater love for Christ than you have for the things of this world. When you realize that what you are exchanging, the exchange that you are making, actually is a huge win in your favor when you, when you commit yourself to Jesus. That you're losing nothing and gaining absolutely everything. But you have to come bring yourself to that place. You have to allow yourself to experience that as truth for you. The peace of God is a sense of His love and favor in Christ Jesus. And then finally, Owen writes, Contending to obtain and to keep a sense of the love of God in Christ is our barrier to all the workings and insinuations of temptation. And so I just want to close with Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 16. And then I'll ask the worship team to come. Since you have been raised to to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, 
not the things of birth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives.